This is the Martin Luther Sermon Podcast, and you're listening to Luther's Sermon on Matthew chapter 5, verses 20 to 26, preached on the sixth Sunday after the Feast of the Holy Trinity. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. For more information on the Luther Sermon Podcast or to listen to more Luther sermons, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org. This sermon is from Martin Luther's House Postals, reading from a translation published by J.A. Schulze, publisher in Columbus, Ohio, 1884, a text and translation that's in the public domain. First, the gospel lesson, and then Luther's sermon. Matthew chapter 5, verses 20 to 26. Jesus said, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shalt be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, while thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. So far the gospel reading. Luther's Sermon In this gospel lesson our dear Lord teaches those who believe have been baptized, have the name and glory of being called Christians, and have received manifold spiritual gifts and treasures, that they also endeavor to act as Christians toward each other, without being false or hypocritical. God has bestowed on us no false grace, having the mere semblance of grace, but as our sins also are real and damnable and not imaginary, so is His grace real and sincere. Hence, we should not be deceitful, but true and faithful in our dealings with our neighbors, even as God has been true and faithful toward us, notwithstanding our sinfulness. For this reason, the Lord in our gospel takes up the fifth commandment and warns us by an example, saying, I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is a short decision. Whosoever wishes to enter heaven must have a better piety than the Pharisees. But what is the piety of the Pharisees? It certainly was not wrong for them to lead a nice, chaste, and inoffensive life to show good, a good deportment. For this God requires of all of us, as is written, Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, nor steal, nor lie. It is right for everyone to be obedient to these commandments. But the Pharisees did wrong that they prided themselves in such external works, in their discipline and respectability, thought that they were just even before God, and felt encouraged as though they had rendered full obedience to the law, and this could therefore bring no charges against them. They did not remember that God wants not merely good works, but also a new and pure heart. Against such security, the Lord would warn us. Though we were inoffensive and blameless before all men, we should not on that account imagine that we have rendered full obedience unto God. 
For Christ here says that though a man does not actually kill with his hands, he may nevertheless be a murderer and a transgressor of this commandment before God. For in this commandment he has not merely forbidden outward murder, but also wrath within the heart and every angry word and look. The righteousness of the Pharisees consists merely in outward piety, in abstaining from external murder, adultery, and theft. By so doing, they suppose that they are pious, holy, and without fault, and the law has no more claims on them, but has been fulfilled, and that God, having been satisfied, is no longer angry, though the heart is still full of sins and evil inclinations within. This kind of righteousness, the Savior says, does not belong to heaven, but to hell. God's commandments cannot be fulfilled by external works. The hearts must be free from all wrath, hatred, and envy, from licentiousness, and all evil lusts. Whoever can say that he has attained this may say also that he is pious. But, because sins and evil lusts are not overcome altogether within the heart, but exist, even if they do not manifest themselves in deeds, you have no right to consider yourself just or entitled to enter into the kingdom of heaven. For this purpose, Christ says, a better righteousness is required. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees does not enable you to enter heaven. What kind of righteousness is it which exceeds? It is the righteousness of those whose work and heart are both pious and in accordance with the word of God, so that the hand not only does not kill, but the heart is also free from all wrath so that you do not only abstain from adultery in deed, but your heart is also free from all evil lusts and desires. And so in reference to all other commandments, for such the law requires, it does not require merely the works to be good, but also requires a pure heart in strict accord with the word of God and the law. But where is such a heart to be found, you may ask? I do not find it in me, neither do you find it in you. We are very apt to give way to wrath and to be angry before we think of it. And the evil lusts within the heart arise very quick, even in saints who fight against them and hate themselves on account of them. What shall we do then? Such a righteousness, that is, a pure heart, we do not have. And yet we hear the conclusion. Except your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no cause enter into the kingdom of heaven. This we shall do. We shall not be like the scribes and Pharisees, considering ourselves pious because of our works, but with all the good we can do, humble ourselves before God and say, Dear Lord, I am a poor sinner. Be gracious unto me, and do not judge me according to my works, but according to thy grace and mercy which thou hast prepared and promised in Christ Jesus. Our Lord would thus especially admonish us to guard against spiritual pride and to acknowledge the impurity of our heart and the sinfulness of our nature, that we may be led to trust in his grace. This is the true righteousness, which belongs to the kingdom of heaven. This does not consist in works, although a holy and blameless life is required, but in forgiveness of sins and in the grace of God. For although we should externally give offense to no one and should exercise ourselves diligently in the will and word of God, yet our greatest faults remains that our hearts are still full of evil lusts and sins. Whoever therefore has been informed by the word of Christ and believes that his sins have been forgiven for Christ's sake is justified, not for his own sake because he is a sinner, but for the sake of divine grace. Through faith in Christ Jesus, his sins are forgiven. St. Peter therefore says, Acts 15, 
God purifies the heart by faith. This purifying, however, is not of such a nature that we feel no more evil thoughts and desires in our hearts. These will continue until we return to dust and arise again to another and an eternal life, when the heart shall be purified indeed. Here it is done in word and faith, by which God will not impute to us our sins and punish them, but forgive and remit them. And yet faith will produce its fruits, and we will begin, by the help of the Holy Ghost, to be obedient to God. But as before said, such obedience is still imperfect and must always be accompanied by forgiveness of sins. The words of Christ, Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven, are not to be taken as though the works of the Pharisees were evil in themselves. When the Pharisees, Luke 18, glorifies himself and says, I am no extortioner, nor unjust, nor an adulterer. I fast twice in the week and give tithes of all that I possess. He did not lead a wrong life in this respect. It would indeed be desirable that the external conduct of all were like his, for then civil government, the executioner, father and mother, master and mistress, would have very little trouble with bad boys and wicked people. But this was the great mistake of the Pharisees, that he considered himself righteous on account of his life, and did not think it necessary that God should be gracious unto him and forgive him the sins and evil lusts within his heart. The Lord shows us that we ought not to be satisfied with this kind of righteousness, but to strive for a better one if we would enter into the kingdom of heaven. For this purpose he holds up to us as an example the fifth commandment, that we may learn from it what the righteousness of the Pharisee is and to avoid it. The fifth commandment, as you know, says, Thou shalt not kill. The Pharisees thought that they did enough if they abstained from killing with the hand, that then they had kept this command and were lacking in nothing, and that no one could do any more. But Christ raises a higher standard for them, saying, Not so, my friend. The commandment has a different meaning. If the commandment said, Thy hand shall not kill, then everyone would have kept it who had not killed with the hand. But it says, Thou shalt not kill, that is, Thou shalt not injure thy neighbor with, the, with thy heart or mouth, thy senses, or anything which thou art or hast. Thou shalt not merely abstain from killing the body, but from everything which might serve to destroy life. From this is, it is plain that the Lord does not restrict the meaning of the word to kill to the idea of taking the life of the body and turning it into a corpse, but includes everything from which, as far as you are concerned, death would result. For instance, if you are at enmity with someone and would begrudge him every crumb of bread like the rich man in the case of poor Lazarus, such a man, so far as it depends on you, would have to die. You have not killed him with your hand, but you are still his murderer. As Ambrosius says, Si nine pavisti oxidisti. If I give you no food to your brother, you kill him. In 1 John 3 it is written, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know, know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. The reason is that hatred only awaits a chance and may easily end in murder. Whoever therefore wishes to keep this commandment must not merely desist from killing with the hand, but he must also have a heart void of wrath, so that he casts no sour look and speaks no harsh word even to those whom the world says that they have deserved every calamity. The Lord thus shows that this commandment may be transgressed in a fourfold manner. First, by the heart when it is moved to hatred and envy against the neighbor. Secondly, when the emotions of the heart are manifest and when it shows wrath by external gestures, as when in passing his neighbor one is not willing to look at him, to speak to him, to thank him, etc. 
The word raka, here used by the Lord, refers especially to a sour and unfriendly face, in which case wrath is observed in the eye or face and in the manner of speech. The transgression is committed, thirdly, when wrath enters from the heart to the mouth, when one curses, slanders, or speaks evil against his neighbor. The fourth manner of transgression is the grossest and most wicked when a wrathful heart, unfriendly gestures, anger, and tongue and hand are all combined so that death is inflicted or meant to be inflicted. Although one degree is always greater than the other, the Lord himself pointing out the difference and making a distinction also in the punishments, they are all, the least and the greatest, sins against this commandment. He that fosters within his heart Aversion, wrath, and envy against his neighbor is already considered a murderer before God. Examine yourselves, therefore, whether you have kept this commandment fully or are able to do so now as Christ has commanded it to be kept. If you are no hypocrite, you will have to confess that you have not kept it and that you are altogether unable to keep it. But what is to be done then? How God intends to punish the transgressor, Moses has plainly stated, Deuteronomy 27, Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them. You should therefore do as Christ here teaches, and carefully avoid becoming a scribe or a Pharisee who consider themselves righteous because they have not committed murder in the external act. Have a care of your heart, your mouth, and your gestures. And when you find that anger is rising, flee to God, saying, O Lord, I, a poor sinner, have again transgressed the fifth commandment. I have suffered myself to become angry, and I have been unfriendly toward my neighbor in words and gestures. But forgive this great sin of mine, and give me grace to amend and to do so no more. This is one part of your duty, which was not done by the Pharisees. They went on in carnal security and did not consider anger to be a sin, much less ask forgiveness for it. In the second part, you should make earnest endeavors to check your anger. And though you may not be able to banish it from the heart at once, you should first make an honest confession to God and ask forgiveness, and then guard against letting the anger become rooted, which still may remain in your heart, and prevent it from breaking out again in unfriendly gestures, evil words, and hostile hands. But quench your wrath and speak kindly to your neighbor." A good word will find a good lodgment, and you shall surely find that wrath will wane from day to day, vanish like smoke. Such was not the case with the Pharisees. They did not consider it sinful to have wrath within the heart, to show unfriendly gestures, and even to use evil language, but suffered these sins to remain undisturbed. It is the nature of these views, and especially that of anger, to put on a good appearance. We are prone to argue thus, this person has injured me. I would do wrong if I did not look sour and become angry, for I would thus encourage him to go on in his sinful way. I must make the rogue feel it, else he will grow more wild and impudent. As the heart is naturally inclined to wrath, and now the delusion is added that it is right and beneficial to be angry, we need not be surprised to find a large flame in which the devil figures largely, the animosity increasing from day to day, and the hearts becoming more and more embittered against each other. Against this the Lord warns us that we may not be led astray by such pharisaical opinions. He wants us to be true Christians who either do right or acknowledge their wrong and ask God for forgiveness and for a pure heart. If one thus exercised himself in the Ten Commandments, do you not think that he would have reason every hour to confess his sins, to pray, and to make use of faith and the word? 
For confession of sin is necessary when we are overtaken by wrath and other evil lusts, that we may not deny it or excuse ourselves, but confess before God in all sincerity that we have been doing wrong. After that, we must pray also that he would not impute to us our sins, but forgive them for Christ's sake and sanctify us more and more through the Holy Ghost. Such prayer should be offered in faith and in the full assurance that in Christ and this and other sins have been forgiven. If this does not take place, all your offering and worship are in vain, and God has no pleasure in them. These, in these words, the Lord very strikingly describes the thoughts of the Pharisees. They had endeavored to raise a dust before the eyes of God so that he should not see the envy and hatred in their hearts against their neighbor and that other people should also consider them to be pious. But this is in vain. You thus merely deceive yourself. God looks first of all at the heart and how it is disposed toward the neighbor. If he finds it to be full of hatred and envy, you have no reason to think that he is pleased with your offering and worship because he has commanded, Love thy neighbor as thyself. He wants, first of all, the same obedience from you, or he will have nothing to do with you. What kind of transaction would it be if you gave to God an ox which is worth ten dollars and then turned about and killed your brother? That would be giving a farthing and stealing ten thousand pounds. Such work will not pass. If you would serve God, do it with a heart that has no hatred toward your neighbor, or else know that your service is an abomination in the sight of God. For this reason, many who live at enmity with their neighbors will not partake of the sacrament or say the Lord's Prayer. They stagger at the petition, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, fearing that because they do not forgive, they will pronounce judgment on themselves and ask that God shall not forgive them. This is true. And no one should think otherwise. If you will not forgive, neither will God forgive you. This is certain. Therefore, consider what you do when you harbor anger and refuse to abandon it. Neither will you make matters better by abstaining from prayer and the sacrament, but rather worse. For God will judge you as he finds you. Therefore, follow the direction of Christ. Humble yourself before God and confess your sins. Be reconciled also with your neighbor and banish all wrath. Then come and offer thy gift. Otherwise, as you here learn, God will not accept you or be pleased with your offering, prayer, etc. This is what the Lord means when he says, Leave thy gift before the altar, as though he would say, You will not affect anything by it before God. In this reference to the person who gives occasion for anger and offends his neighbor, he should humble himself not only before God and confess that he has done wrong, but also before his neighbor, then expect forgiveness from God. The other party who is offended and supposes himself to have good reason to be angry is also taught by the Lord willingly to forgive and not to continue in his enmity. In long delay, the Lord says there is great danger, for if you continue to disregard all entreaties for reconciliation, the other party might commit the matter to the judge, to God in heaven, and say, Lord, I have done what is required of me. From thee I receive grace, which I do not receive from men. I will therefore commit all unto thee. If God would thus visit thee, what would be his judgment? He shall seize you, who will not forgive nor forget, and deliver you to the officer, and you shall be cast into prison, whence you shall not come out until you have paid the uttermost farthing. That is, there shall be no mercy for you, as is said, Luke 6, with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. Hence the Lord requires of both parties, to be merciful, to give up wrath, and to be friendly toward all men, else the fifth commandment will condemn us as murderers before God, and the punishment shall not be wanting. 
This doctrine and practice should be found among Christians, and they should exercise themselves in it. Otherwise, God will be displeased altogether, and we injure ourselves, not merely as it regards life and goods, but also as it regards the soul, as the Lord threatens. But aside from the estate of Christians, or the kingdom of Christ, in the office and courts of the state, the fifth commandment is not thus to be applied. There the Lord has given special command, which is to be followed and observed. Whoever has office in the civil government is commanded to be angry, to punish, and to kill, in case the subjects have done anything deserving of death. Father and mother have also been commanded by God not to laugh when children and servants have done evil, but to reprimand and to punish them. Thus God commands them. If they will not do this, they are disobedient to God and act contrary to their office and command. The idea is not that the thief should say and do say to the judge, Do not hang me, for the fifth commandment it is written, Thou shalt not kill. This he might say to his equals who are not in office, but of the government has the command to make use of the sword and to subdue vice. Thus it could not be allowed a maidservant who has been negligent and careless to say to her mistress, Dear mistress, you are a Christian. Think of the fifth commandment, which forbids you to be angry with me. For Christ says, Whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of judgment. No, my good servant, God has adopted a different rule. You are a servant and are required to fulfill your office and to do all diligence what you are bidden to do. If you will not do it, your reward will not consist in good works, but in punishment. This God has enjoined not merely on masters and mistresses, but also on rulers in the civil government. They are not the less Christian because of their anger or their office and calling, but they would prove themselves not to be Christians if they neglected their calling and failed to exercise discipline in the family and in the state, idly looking on and letting children, domestics, and subjects do all kinds of mischief. The difference which is to be made is this. In the kingdom of Christ there should be no wrath but kindness and love. The heart should not be embittered against anyone, neither should anyone be injured by the mouth or by the hand, but in the state and in the household... The mouth and the hand, according to each one's station and office, shall hurt and harm all who have done evil, or neglect to do what they have been commanded. There it is in place not to be lenient or merciful, but to punish. Whoever neglects to punish causes the highest judge, God himself, to arise and to punish the evildoer. In this there is no advantage, for whenever God arises to punish, he punishes the whole nation, one rogue with the other. This is the doctrine of the gospel lesson for today. May our dear Lord help us by his Holy Spirit that we may treat each other as Christians and that everyone may be faithful in his station and office. Amen. This has been Martin Luther's sermon on the gospel reading, Matthew chapter 5, verses 20 to 26, preached on the sixth Sunday after the Feast of the Holy Trinity. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. For more Luther sermons, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org.